Thank you so much, men. Really appreciate that. Take your Bible, turn to the book of James. Book of James. Make sure my microphone's on. Yes. James chapter 3. It's also good to see the Siglins here today, Ralph and Lynn. And uh, they are, they were longtime members here. And they live in Tennessee now, had to come back to see us. So great to see you, and uh, glad you made it in person. It's a little different in 3D, isn't it? A little different being in person. They watch a lot of our services online, and it's a joy to have them here. It's great to see you. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13, is where we'll be. Uh, we have a small section today compared to what we've been covering, but um, James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. You know, as a kid, I remember my dad uh, at one point bought a uh, 1990, I think it was, Honda Accord, and um, it would uh, occasionally not start for whatever reason. And uh, if, you, if you've ever had a car that, that would do that, it was, it was kind of a, a scary thing. For no reason, apparently, you'd come out after shopping, get in the car, turn the key, and it just nothing happened. It wouldn't even try to turn over. And so I remember one time as a boy, sitting in the car with dad, after we stopped and, and uh, we got in the car and he, he got in, he turned the key and it, it didn't start. And we all sat there and looked at him and he looked at us and he said, well, let's have a word of prayer. And, and you know, um, at the time, as a boy, I think I was about 10. I thought to myself, I think a mechanic would do a better job than your uh, prayers. <laughs> but you know what happened is, is we prayed, Lord, please, please bring this car to life, and, and we prayed, and he, he turned the car, and the Honda Accord roared to life, uh, as much as a Honda Accord can, can roar, you know. <laughs> I, I wonder how many times Christians have, have thought about our circumstances like this. We get in a situation, and uh, something has befuddled us. Something is, 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 we're up against something, and we look at it, and we immediately think of, who can I call? What professional can I go to? How can I solve this problem? Uh, something can't be found, right? And so we just start looking, or we think to ourselves, I should have put an air tag on that thing. We, we, we get mad because our car won't start, and we immediately, you know, we run up against all kinds of obstacles. I, I wonder, do we turn to God as if He can actually solve our problems? Or do we, do we, like I did, think, well, this is a waste of time? You know, I think sometimes we skip the part uh, about going to God. We act as Christians, we act as functionally atheists sometimes, that we don't really think God does things a certain way. We don't really think of in terms of God's way and the way God's wisdom works. Let me just kind of step into our advice giving. When you give advice to people, which we all do at different times, people come and talk to you about a problem, and do you talk to them about how God would see this problem, or do you tend to immediately think of tips and tricks you heard on the, on the most recent Facebook post, or you were watching daytime television, you saw something that might help them with their Certain, uh, certain situation? Or do you, do you think in terms of God's way of thinking about problems? There are, there are two main ways people look at the world and two main ways people live in our world. Either we receive wisdom from God as revelation from God. That is, either you treat the Bible as it is God's word and you receive it as such that it has authority over me, it instructs me on how to live my practical life. That's the whole topic of this book is practical Christian living. Either you accept God's word as that, or you identify yourself as having some kind of authority and you reject God's revelation. That's what it comes down to. 
And I think a lot of times Christians, we Christians, if you're a Christian today, you you might buy into non-Christian ways of thinking without even realizing it. You, you You have adopted a worldly mindset. So today I, I encourage you to examine your behavior and your values, and I encourage you to align them with the truth of God's Word. As we look at His Word today, let's bow for prayer and ask for blessing. Father, we do need you now. We, we do mean it, that we need your presence here. We need the Spirit of God working in our hearts. We need you in this room with us and in us and convicting us of the sin that we have and of the, mistake, of the um, mistaken thoughts we have adopted of the worldliness in our behavior. And Father, please work on us and mold us to be the people we ought to be. Help us to be soft in our hearts today, to be soft and and, and receptive to truth, not be hardened and rejecting you. And, And Lord, I know that all kinds of people are listening to the sound of my voice this morning. There are people, there are people here who, um, who don't know you as Savior or here because they're with a friend or just here to, uh, to be nice to someone, but Lord, there are, there are others who are struggling. They are emotionally at the end of their rope, and they need your grace this morning. We all need your grace. As we look at your word, I pray we would recognize where we need to change, and I pray that we would recognize you as the source of that power to change, and that through Jesus we might be a new people. I pray all this in your precious Son's name. Amen. James chapter 3, uh, there's a couple observations that James makes in this short section that are very fascinating. The first observation he makes is this, that your conduct proves your values. You know, why, why you do what you do. What's the motivation behind your choices? What are your reasons behind why you do what you do? What you do reveals what's going on in your heart, and your conduct, your behavior proves what is important to you. And if you might be saying, I think I've heard this like recently, that is true. James is coming back to an idea that he said earlier about faith without works is dead, that our our faith needs to work itself out, that we should not just be hearers of the Word, we should be doers of the Word. And all of this, he again goes to this point that our values, when we talk about values, we're not just talking about material things you might value. We're talking about ideas and commitments that form the bedrock of our decision-making. Like, why do you do what you do? The values you have in your life are forming that bedrock that make your decisions. And there are two kind of value systems that are at work. As I mentioned, they have their own priorities, their own ideas, and their own commitments. So how do you know what your values are? If you say, I don't know what my values are. I I can tell you. I can write them out. Well, look at your conduct. Let's see what the Bible says about this. First, he says in verse 13 that humble wisdom motivates good works. Who, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. He begins with a pointed question. He says, who among you thinks that you're wise and understanding? And and what he's doing is, I believe, he's referring back to chapter 3 and verse 1 where he says, let not many of you be teachers. Like, be careful if you're going to put yourself up in a position to teach the Word of God, to, uh, to, to say that you're wise and understanding, that you can communicate God's Word. Be careful because there's a stricter judgment. There's more scrutiny for those people who would teach the truth of God. So then he says, okay, now which one of you would raise your hands and say, I am wise and understanding? To be wise means to have a grasp on how things work in the world. 
sophos, wisdom. It's just practical outworking of truth. That's what we're talking about. How does the wisdom in the world work? Understanding has the idea of being able to learn, someone who is able to act as a guide. That's an understanding, uh, the idea of, of guiding someone. to teachers who desire to communicate their values to their students, and they desire to guide them. That's what you're doing, hopefully. You're desiring to guide your students in their way. And if you think you're capable of doing this, he says, I've got something for you. First, let him, this is what your Bible says, let him show. There are two imperatives in this short section. This is the first one. Wisdom is related to action. Let him show. Wisdom is not just intellectual pursuit. We are not here just to get smarter. Okay? There's, this is not a lecture. When, when preaching should not just be a lecture where we all walk away and say, wow, I just learned a few things. That was kind of neat. And then we move on with our life. Well, preaching of God's Word, when we come into interaction with God's Word, it should challenge who we are. It should, it should speak to our heart, not just to our minds. And he's saying here that you should show, you should show your wisdom, wisdom related to action. Show your fruits of your thinking. How do you know your wisdom is the right kind of wisdom? Well, the question is, where does it lead? And he says here that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. This is what he must show. Humble wisdom motivates good works. Believers are able to demonstrate their choices, their works, their decisions, demonstrate they're done according to God's Word. And this is so important because we do a lot of things that are just because we've always done them that way. Or we do things because our parents told them to, do, to us to do that way. Or we don't do things because our parents told us to do them that way. Or we do things because our parents told us not to do them. You know, it's like there's this whole reasons of why we do things. It's, it's, it's amazing. We have all these different purposes, all these different reasons. He says, if you're wise, if you're understanding, show that your works are done. I'm skipping a part. I'm coming back to it. Show that your works are done in the meekness of wisdom that is skilled living, a philosophy of life. You know, being skilled in seeing connections between things that may not be readily apparent. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is given by the old to the young. And we're so thankful we have in our Bible a, a whole book, Proverbs, dedicated to wisdom. I mean, think about the connections that might not be readily apparent at first, such as laziness and poverty. The Bible makes it very clear that if you pursue laziness, you will have the fruits of laziness, which is poverty. And the Bible also makes it clear that immorality is connected with unhappiness, which is fascinating because that's not readily apparent. You look at the people around you, and if you're a teenager, I remember I was telling this to one of our young people recently, that when I was younger, I, I, I really struggled with some of these things. I'd say, I know what the Bible says. Like, I know, I know, it's, I know it's true. I just don't know if I believe it. Like, I know that, that it says immorality will lead to unhappiness. But boy, you look at my friends who are being immoral. They look like they're having a great time. See, it's, it, wisdom can point out the connections and say, no, 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 sin brings death. And appearances aren't always reality. And so here, I think about anger and destruction. Anger it might make you feel empowered. What the Bible tells us is that it destroys. Wisdom, in fact, gives us a framework for understanding the world around us. And since God created the world, since the world belongs to God, He is universally over all things, His wisdom applies to everything. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak doesn't matter what background you have, God's wisdom applies to you because he created you. So he owns you, and he can tell you how to best live your life. Now look at this. He says that this is a wisdom that is done with meekness. I love this word. Meekness is the attitude that comes from true heavenly wisdom. The word meekness has the idea of humble wisdom instead of proud wisdom. 
Okay, so we've been talking about wisdom as a way of doing things, as a way of, of, of practically living out your thinking. And so he's drawing a dr- contrast here. There's more than one kind of wisdom. There's ungodly wisdom and there's godly wisdom. There's humble wisdom and there's proud wisdom. And this meekness only it appears in the New Testament a few times. It carries the idea of not being overly impressed with yourself. This is humble. James one twenty one. Uh, earlier in the book, he says this, that we are to receive the Word of God with meekness because it can rescue us from destruction. Look at this. Therefore, lay aside filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word. You must receive humbly God's Word because if you receive God's Word with pride, you're going to reject it. You're going to say, I don't need that. I know better than that. I'm not going to listen to God's Word. What does He have to say to me? That's a proud heart. A humble heart comes and says, I desperately need to know truth. I desperately need to know what to do next. That's a humble heart. That is meekness. Meekness doesn't mean wimpy. Okay, meekness is humility. And this implanted word is able to be deeply ingrained with us so that our faith demonstrates good works. You know, it takes humility for us to understand our role as a creature. You're not the creator. You're not God. You don't get to determine what's reality. God has determined what is reality. It's your job to recognize it. And people need to hear that today. You can't determine what's true. God determines what's true. You can recognize if it's true or recognize if it's false, but you are a creature, not a creator. Does that make sense? God's Word tells us that, but it's hard for a lot of people to grasp because we want to be empowered. We want to overthrow God. We want to take the place of God, and we want to be God. Like, not a lot of sins have changed since the Garden of Eden, have they? It's the same kind of thing that drove Eve to disobeying God drives people today to reject God, this pride and refusing to obey Him. But then He gives us the how. So I jumped over that phrase. If you look, go back to that one phrase in our verse here. He says, he says that we should do it by good conduct. You see that? Let Him show by good conduct. That is attractive, fine, high moral quality conduct. Conduct that is good, this is important, is not defined by the society we live in. Our society does not tell us what's good and bad because society changes, but what is good does not change. Okay? Also, it's not defined depending on what culture you're in. Culture is just a way of life, and some cultures can be wicked cultures. Some cultures can be good cultures. And God's standard of righteous behavior is universal because God is a universal God. So God speaks to all of our cultures, all of them. It doesn't matter if you're on this side of the world or on the other side of the world, God has something to say to you, and we must align with His way of doing things. Good conduct is that which is in accordance with God and His Word, because good conduct is, first of all, just simple obedience to God. It, don't make it overly complicated. Obey God. That's good conduct. Obey God. Just do what God says. And we like, well, I want to nuance it a little bit. There's no, there's no blacks and whites. There's tons of gray areas. Friends, obey God, and that's good conduct. Do what God says. So many people argue with God and try to find their way out of obeying God. When God says no and we say yes, or God says do this and we say not now, that's disobedience. I, I, this is how I speak to my children. I don't speak quite like this much energy. But I, I, this moral clarity has to be taught to all of us. That there is a simple, that when God says do something, you do it. Obey. When God says do something and we say, I don't think so, that's disobedience. So we need to be aware that this is what he's talking about. When you are obedient to God, that's good conduct. That shows you have humble wisdom. If you find your life a pattern of saying, eh, I'm not really sure about that, Lord, that's pride. That's just simple pride. Proverbs 8, 13, 
tells us this, the fear of the Lord is to what? Hate evil. And pride and arrogance in the evil way, in the perverse mouth, I hate. He says we ought to hate pride. We ought to hate evil. We ought to hate this kind of evil way and perverse speech. We see very quickly here that your conduct proves your values. Humble wisdom will motivate good works, but proud wisdom will generate selfish works. And this is very straightforward. Look at verse 14. He says, but, is a nice contrast here, very straightforward. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not lie, or do not boast, and lie against the truth. A couple things here. First, the one who is proud doesn't always know he's proud. Think about it. He says, if you are bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast. That, that is that, that he points to the outworking of proud wisdom to show that wisdom like this is not the kind of wisdom we want bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, that's pride. And so he points to the fruit of pride, bitter envy. Envy is looking at others and desiring the good that they have. It's refusing, as Proverbs, I'm sorry, as Romans 12, 15 says, it's refusing to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Envy is when someone's rejoicing, you're weeping because you wish you had what they had. You look at someone else's job, someone else's children, someone else's riches, someone else's blessings from God and say, that should have been mine. And I'm mad that it's not. Envy is bitter. It's not sweet. It's not good. It's not pleasant. It bites. It consumes. It destroys. It is bitter and nasty. And wherever it goes, it leaves a stench. That's what happens with envy. Bitter envy and self-seeking. It's very closely tied to seeking your own things. It's a search for, desiring for, promoting your own way over God's way, seeking my glory over God's glory. Now, it might seem like self-seeking is harmless. I mean, you're just looking out for number one, right? Biblically, self-seeking, though, is a source of all kinds of disobedience and unrighteousness. I want you to notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 when he talks about those who are self-seeking. He says, but those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will receive from God indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. The Jew first and to the Greek. doesn't matter if you're a Jew and you're part of the covenant people, if you're a Greek and you're not, you will receive judgment for being self-seeking and not obeying the truth. Whoa, that's really, really strong. And it hits us hard because we think very little of self-seeking. We don't think it's a big deal, but God says it's a huge deal. If you are envious and self-seeking in your heart, he says, don't boast. This, this pride lives deep within your heart. He says it's in our inner beings. Pride has its own kingdom in your heart. It's established that. You might not even see it initially, but itself, it works itself out in how we act. Then he corrects, he corrects their, their thinking with the, the truth. Notice he says, do not boast. Do not boast. This is almost like an exclusive Christian word. It means to, to, to be be um, uh, exulting over someone. It's about uh, having an enemy in your mind that you, that you conquer and you stand over them and you thump your chest and you boast and you brag. That's what boasting is. He says, don't do that. It's self-promoting. Don't exalt yourself. It's foolish. It's not based on God's truth. And secondly, he says, don't lie against the truth. He says, if you are boasting like this, you're ignoring God's wisdom. You're embracing man's wisdom and you're denying God's reality, you're embracing your own reality. And so with people today, rather than seeing the truth and believing the truth, sometimes rebel against the truth. They, I don't want to know. In fact, if you talk to people and say, if, if Christianity was true, would you believe it? If we could, they, sometimes people will still say, no, I don't want to believe it. 
because they're not interested in truth. They're interested in rebellion. As we close this first point, I want to ask you a couple questions. If you don't know what your values uh, look like, would you just look at your habits? Look at your conduct. If your philosophy of living doesn't promote righteous living, you have the wrong philosophy. If your philosophy of living excuses bad conduct by claiming it's cultural and should, be conf- and should not be confronted with the Bible, you've embraced worldly wisdom. If you say it's just part of how I grew up, then you've embraced worldly wisdom. It doesn't matter if it's how you part of you grew up. It matters what God says about your life and about your culture and about your, your way of doing things. If you can excuse ungodly behavior with philosophical maneuvers, you've embraced worldly wisdom. People all over this world today make excuses based on philosophical maneuvers. They explain to you why it's not truly or not really technically sin to do what they did. Your values. The Bible tells us here that your conduct proves your values. And secondly, your values will prove their source. We see that in chapter 3, verse 15 through 18. If we begin with our conduct proving, demonstrating what your value system is, you need to look close at your value system and where it comes from. You want to know what you're drinking, right? What source you're drinking from. If you remember at the wilds one time when I was a kid, uh, I, I, I was playing in the, in the, uh, with all of our cabin in, in this waterfall area. And so we went up, we decided we were going to drink some of the water from the waterfall. And so we went over and there was water coming down the thing. And we were putting our mouths under there and just drinking up this water. And our counselor comes over and says, what are you doing? We say, well, it's from the river. So it's clean, right? And he says, you have no idea what's up on the other side of that. Like, there could be a dead deer lying in the river, contaminating all of this. Fortunately, none of us got sick. But, you know, you do want to know what your source is. That's why if you buy really expensive water on the side, it says sourced from the most wonderful uh, places. And you start digging into what those wonderful places are, and it's the Rock Hill City tap water that's just been repackaged, right? There is one of those out there that says the finest municipal water systems or something to that effect. And they, they call it the language. Basically, they're turning on a tap and filling it and putting it in the fridge and whatever. You want to know your source. It matters what the source is, your values, what directs your life. I can't think of anything more important than that, knowing what the source is. Let's look at first earthly wisdom and its fruit. Verse 15, he says, he says this wisdom, going back, if you just write back to the previous phrase, this wisdom, this kind of wisdom, does not descend from above. Okay. This is not godly wisdom. This wisdom is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where evil and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. This wisdom, look at its nature. He says it is earthly in nature. It is carnal. It is fleshly. It doesn't think about eternity. It doesn't consider God in the equation. It rules God out from the get-go, so it's earthly. And and notice this, it's not concerned, it's only concerned with the here and now, and in that way you could say it's materialistic. Not that it's just trying to accumulate material stuff for itself, but that it only thinks in terms of the material world. So they think in terms of making decisions about material world. We reject the spiritual side of people. We think of people as animals. We think of people as programmable widgets. We just think of people as that instead of seeing them as a soul. We start seeing people how we can use them. Notice the second, sensual. I think of this as the tactic for this wisdom. That is sensual in its tactic. That is consumed with how something feels or appeals to the senses. That it, it, it rules 
by what we, we need, we feel like we need, it's hard to reject this because it feels right and it feels good. Like, it's very hard to, to say no to, to Halloween candy that's sitting in your house because it's just there. And it's, and it's so good, and you're sitting there looking at it, and you're like, I'm trying to be good, but it's just there. How do you say no to that? Well, you hide it. You put it somewhere where you don't know where it is. Or you have your spouse hide it, right? That's what you do. I haven't tried that yet. i got to try that. Maybe that would help. But you think about it. It's hard to say no to that which smells good, that which looks good, that which tastes good. You know, sensual wisdom tells us that something can't possibly be wrong if it feels as good. Sensual wisdom obviously involves sexual sin, but also involves sins of gluttony, sins of escape that involve pills or other drugs, sins of drink and drunkenness. This is sensual wisdom. It says, just do this. It's so nice. It tastes so good. It feels so good. Of course it's okay. By nature, it appeals to our senses. It sounds good. It looks good. Like Satan in the garden, sensual things are often deceptive in nature. They appear to be harmless, but underneath the bait is the hook. As sensual by tactic and demonic by source, it has a spiritual source. Don't ever forget this. And I think we as uh, very materialistic Westerners in America tend to downplay spiritual things. We tend to think in terms of the physical and not think in terms of the spiritual. But he points to the source of this kind of wisdom. He says, don't make the mistake. The wicked demons, who I believe are fallen angels who roam this earth, who work their mayhem, they're the source of this wisdom. This is demonic wisdom. This is not just some guy sitting in his living room came up with it. Like Satan himself is behind these things. And do not downplay this. We can't discount the spiritual nature of the battle. Further, the nature of it is demonic. If we believe the lies of Satan, then we are friendly to the lies that Satan presents to us. Then we find ourselves participating in that which is demonic, not that which is spiritual. Notice the fruit, though. The fruit of this kind of wisdom, what kind of thinking he says here, verse 16, is that confusion and every evil thing are there, envy and, envy and self-seeking. If you go back to verse 14, he's already talking about envy and self-seeking in your hearts. Now he talks about it again, this envy, this self-seeking. Where it exists, we see confusion. This is disordered living, unruliness. This is the same word used back in chapter 3 and verse 8, when he says the tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison, your tongue is disordered and it is out of control. He says, so confusion comes from this kind of thinking. Also in verse 8 of chapter 1, the man who is double-minded is unstable in all his ways. He is disordered or unstable. Instability, confusion, and chaos come from those who reject divine wisdom instead of embracing God's wisdom. Say it very clearly, confusion is not from God. Confusion is not something that God promotes. When there's confusion in families, in churches, we're not doing it because God told us to be confused. This kind of confusion does not come from God. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of confusion. This is the same word. But of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, Disruption, disorder, chaos is not according to God's nature. It's according to Satan's nature. Satan is a destructive, deceptive, confused person. He, he will push that kind of stuff on us. He creates confusion. He creates chaos out of his pure rage and anger against God. But notice it doesn't stop there. It says confusion, 
and every evil thing. If you buy into worldly philosophy in due time, every evil thing stems from this. In fact, the word pragma here, thing, is the word pragma. We get our word pragmatic, just the idea that it works out. Everything that works out that is evil comes from this kind of demonic philosophy. Earthly wisdom is base. It is crass. This word evil has the idea not necessarily of wickedness in the same way that Satan is wicked, has the idea of that which is crass and impolite and crude. You want to know where crude things come from? It comes from earthly wisdom, crass jesting. We see very clearly here the earthly wisdom and its fruit, but we also see revealed wisdom and its fruit. Look at verse 17. It says, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's look at true wisdom's source. It's from above. It's revealed truth. It's from God. It's given by God. And I want to I pause here for just a moment because there's a tendency for us to see wisdom that is from above and think to ourselves, oh yeah, the wisdom that's kind of like out there that I can't have access to. It's like God's wisdom that's somewhere in the ether. Like it's up there in outer space or in the, in the clouds. I don't know. It's this nebulous thing, hard to put my mind around. It's, it's wisdom from above, but that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying it's hard to reach. In fact, he's making the opposite case. He says the wisdom comes from above it is revealed to us by God. God has given us this wisdom in, in his word. In fact, the, the wisdom from above is sitting in your lap if you're holding a Bible. That is what he's talking about. He's talking about the revealed truth of God. And we see God's grace is shown that he did not just leave us to figure out truth on our own. Aren't you thankful for that? We don't have to just wander around and say, well, I hope it's true. I wonder what's true. Oh, I don't know what's happening. No, God, God came into human history and spoke truth to us through his word. We tend to think of these hard to reach things, but that's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying it's easy. It's right in front of you. This is wisdom from above. And isn't it true that's part of God's nature? Because James 1.17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He gave us his good wisdom, true wisdoms uh, uh, where it comes from, its source. But let's look at also its character, true wisdom's nature and its character. Notice how true wisdom is described. First, it's from above. Then we see that it is pure. It's not defiled. I notice I left you a lot more space on the second one than I did on the first one, so you can write some of these notes in if you like. That it is holy and good. We ought to insist on God's word to be pure and not tainted with our own ideas. We ought to use biblical language, biblical thinking, biblical patterns of truth rather than rereading the Bible and our own ideas. People today will promote the idea there is nothing good in the world except what we say is good. That's absurd. God determines what's good. He's told us what is good. Secondly, peaceable. That means it promotes good relationships. If you walk around and every relationship you have is a wreck, then you are not abiding by this kind of good behavior because wisdom from above is peaceable. That means it promotes that which is good in relationships. 
And just to be quite frank, there are some people, I've talked to people before who, who complain to me. They'll come and say, wherever, you know, everyone they talk to, every relationship they have, it's like there's constant chaos and constant disruption, and, and they don't have good relationships with anybody. And, and I, you know, I've had this conversation. Dorian doesn't go off very well, but I'll say something like, have you considered that possibly, maybe, long shot here, that you might be the problem? <laughs> and, um, and, and that idea that, that we are responsible for our, our own relationships, friends. I mean, look in the mirror. Are you having, do you have good relationships with the people around you? Or are your relationships, are you throwing bombs everywhere? Uh, wisdom from above is peaceable. It promotes good harmony and relationships. God knows how you're made. If we embrace right wisdom, order for the family, order for relationships, order for the church, it promotes biblical peace. God's peace is good and holy. How about this one? Gentle. That means reasonable. God's peace is not a bulldog. It's not rough. It's not unreasonable. Sometimes we think of God's ways as being harsh or unkind, but that's the opposite of truth. God's way of doing things has a gentle spirit to it. And I'll, be so far, I'll go so far as to say those even believers and pastors and preachers and teachers who speak the truth with harshness are not doing so in the spirit of Christ because we are to be reasonable and gentle with how we speak. Think about the way Jesus dealt with those who were underprivileged and downtrodden, the undesirables. He loved them. He cared for them and showed kindness to them. He was gentle. He was kind. He was courteous. He was tolerant. And some people are just rude to be rude. And that is not the kind of behavior we ought to have. We ought to show gentleness in our wisdom, also willing to yield. That means we're not stuck on our own ways. We are reasonable, compliant. We're obedient. This means we're willing to let God change our heart. We have, as I prayed this morning, have a soft heart. I'm willing to yield. If God says yield, I say, yes, sir. I'm not so stuck on my ways. I said that on Wednesday night that, you know, change is hard, isn't it? It's hard. It is hard to change. When you have a bad habit, when you're used to dealing with people in a certain way and you get results, and then God works in your life, and he's like, actually, that's because you're being a really bad person because you're embracing sinful attitudes. It's hard for us to actually take a look at ourselves in the mirror and say, yeah, I guess that's right. Lord, please forgive me, and I repent. It's really hard. But friends, we are to be allowing God to mold our hearts. What if God's best for you was that you changed something that you really enjoyed but knew it wasn't best? Let me say it this way. What if your habits, your entertainment habits, the shows and movies you love, music you listen to, what if that that doesn't honor God. And the more you grow in Christ, the more you realize that this area of your life is holding you back in your spiritual growth because you keep getting stuck in carnality. Are you compliant with God? So that as he shows you this, like you, you, you won't fight back. You're not stubborn, but you're willing to yield. You say, yes, Lord, I yield that to you too. Full of mercy full of kindness and compassion and pity. You see others and you think about them, full of good works, the fruit of the Spirit, or full bloom in your life, love, joy, peace, etc. And then without partiality, that means that you're not someone who's tossed around. This, this word actually can mean two different things. Either as the idea of, of wavering, and some translations might even say without wavering, this idea of like uh, James chapter 1 says, a man who is foolish is tossed around with the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Maybe that idea. The other way is that you are easily um, partial towards people, that you, are, you waver from one person to the next. That you show, and that fits the context as well, because in James 2, he talks about we're not to 
be partial in how we deal with people. So either one of these would work. Look at these amazing fruits that would be part of a revealed wisdom's nature. And something strikes me here about this is that the good fruits far outnumber the bad fruits. Do you notice that on your sheet? Like, look at how many bad things there are and look how many good things there are. It doesn't take, and I'll say it this way, it doesn't take much imagination to be bad. Like everybody knows what it's like to be bad. My kids are bad sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> right? I, it, kids can be bad. We all can be bad. We all can stop doing good things and start doing bad things. It doesn't take much imagination. But look at the possibilities of doing righteousness. Look at what a full life looks like for someone who chooses to make revealed wisdom the center of their decision-making. You make God the center of your decision-making, your whole life is different because God made you and God has a purpose for you. God knows what he's doing with you. So submit yourself to God's way of living. True wisdom's fruit, as we close here, I know I'm a little bit over, but hang with me for just a moment. True wisdom's fruit, as we close it out, he says, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Think about this. Wisdom's fruit is good relationships with other people. That, that people who know God are constantly resolving conflicts, not creating more. That, that you see opportunities to solve problems and love people towards reconciliation. We have a ministry of reconciliation to call people to be reconciled to God and be reconciled to each other. Think about the impact of this. When you're embracing heavenly wisdom, God calls for you to be a peacemaking person. Some of us would prefer to have a little mischief and cause trouble. We walk in and everybody's happy and it makes us mad. Can't stand it. There's got to be something, some action around here. We've got to make somebody upset. And there are others who, when there's any sign of conflict, they eject from the situation. They push the eject button on the fighter, and boom, they're gone. Like, they're walking out the back door. They're like, I don't want anything to do with this. They don't want to deal with the problem. They'd rather pretend like everything's fine. We're getting right ahead into Thanksgiving season. Thanksgiving and Christmas, there's lots of family around, and these things are on full display right? You've got people coming in who haven't seen each other in a long time. They sit down at the table, they start talking, and they start talking about stuff that makes the temperature go up. And somebody's going to be like, I can't handle this. They're going to walk out. Somebody's going to be like, oh yeah, let's talk about this right now. And they like push into it. As Christians, we ought to be people who push peace because we promote peace. I love the way he says it's sown in peace by those who make peace. There's the idea there that it takes time for it to grow but we make it at the same time. The message uh, title was simply, Which Wisdom? And I ask you bluntly, which wisdom will you embrace? Which wisdom will you embrace? God's grace enables us to live according to his revealed truth. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, God has given you the wisdom to live life as you should. So you should. Stop making excuses for yourself. Stop saying, well, it's just the way I was brought up. It's just my culture. It's just my whatever. Stop that and obey God. Just obey God. Choose. Lord, you give me the strength through your spirit. You say I can obey you, so I'm going to step out in faith and obey. I've been afraid to take a step forward because I don't think if I step forward, there's going to be anything there. But Lord, you said I would. You said you would be there for me, so I'm going to go. Would you be willing to have faith and trust God to obey him? Simple way of showing trust in God is obedience. God does not only care what you believe. He cares about how you live. He cares about the practical aspects of living. And your way of living should reflect the revealed truth of God's word. So today, as we examine our behavior and values, would you align them with God's truth by the grace of God? He made you. He knows who you are. He loves you. 
And he does this. He gives you his wisdom so you can live a full life in accordance with his truth. Would you bow in prayer as we close? Lord, we ask you to please work in our lives. Lord, there's so many little things about our life that we have embraced, worldly thinking, worldly wisdom, and we need right now to repent of those, to change our mind, to say, Lord, I, I'm going to put that aside. I'm going to choose to believe you, and I'm going to choose to embrace your plan for me. And this is hard for a lot of us, Lord, who are used to leaning on our own understanding, but Lord, may we embrace what you tell us in Proverbs 3. That as we do this, as we trust in you with all of our heart, you will make our paths straight. And Lord, I pray for the faith uh, to be acted on today, that we would truly live out the faith that we have in our hearts. We say we believe you, Lord, but do we trust you? We say we believe you, but is it really true in our life? So Father, as we spend a moment in quiet here, praying for these things and praying for our own hearts. Make us compliant, willing to yield, and soft towards you that we can see where we need to change. Friends, I'm going to give you a little bit of quiet time with God as the pianist plays. Deal with the Lord now in your seat. you today to please make us channels of your grace towards others. Please forgive us of our shortcomings, our sins. Lord, help us to make a commitment today to follow you in your wisdom. That we would not be wooed away by the wisdom of this world, the wrong wisdom. But we, as we examine our hearts and see the areas of our life, we examine our conduct and see areas that are failing you, we would trace that back and see the conduct that comes from above is leading us towards a different way.